0: The subject for this evening's talk is ...of no self. Any length of time of uh, exposure, generally speaking, to uh, these kind of teachings in this kind of facility will, as a rule, bring a person to uh, hearing about and the exploration of what is often referred to as no-self or non-self. And of course the area and issue of self, its appearance, the I and the my in, in this world, is that which we do purposefully bring to focus to look at our relationship to what am I? Who is this? What is it to be? in and of this uh, earth and existence. And it is also spoken of uh, quite uh, regularly that there are three features or aspects of life's experience which we do need to address with as much care and awareness as we can bring to it. And... It's from a direct quote in the old texts of the Buddha, various quotes in fact, and historically has been passed down from one generation of spiritual practitioners in the Dharma tradition to the next. And those three features are aspects of uh, existence. One of them is impermanence, that is the, the field of change, and both in its larger level as well as in the moment-to-moment level. And we've spoken about this during the days here where the awareness of change is a very important means and vehicle in life in order to be in touch and stay in touch with the unfoldment of existence and how much difficulty arises in life through the mind's inability to live with change, change which is coming from within, change in the features of existence, and change which comes from what comes to our senses. And so the awareness of change is not as the ultimate truth of existence, not as any absolute in any way whatsoever, but as the way through the mind and through the senses we experience existence and in that we become aware of the feature of change and we are told that is well worth our while concentrating on, giving genuine attention to as a a duty, as a dharma, as a duty in our day-to-day life and being very, very clear about it. Another characteristic and feature of existence and our experience uh, of it is the aspect of suffering, both in its large and formidable aspects, personal and larger levels of life, and also coming down to various forms of, uh, and expressions of unsatisfactoriness, known, as some of you will know, as Dukkha, D-U-K-H-A, in the tradition. And these two characteristics of change and unsatisfactoriness we can witness and know and experience in a wide variety of circumstances. And to some degree the very apparent feature of change, of impermanence, does inform us and does tell us of the unsatisfactoriness of things and helps to reveal to us time and time again How little real control we have over anything, inwardly or outwardly. Sometimes, of course, the feature of change, as it were, works for our benefit. That there are times when something is continuing, our greatest wish in life is for it to end, to pass, and therefore there is a corresponding relief. And one is therefore in the emotional life grateful for change for something to finish for something to be over with and in other relationships to change is something very painful and extremely difficult to deal with and that dynamic, that interaction which goes on and there's something as one looks in the field of change inwardly and outwardly something unsatisfactory about it Nothing can be relied upon. Nothing can give real security. Nothing which we can really stand upon in terms of states of mind, states of body and states of the world because it changes and even the continuity of life on earth also has no assurance for any human being. And at a global level, you and I are becoming more aware of, of all of that. Therefore, a certain fragility that faces existence. Why? Why? in the field of change, in the activities of coming and going and all that you and I as the present living generation do have to work with, face and deal with. But then we come to the third aspect and feature or characteristic of existence which occurs and that is what is called anatta. So the first is impermanence, the second is unsatisfactoriness and the third characteristic is this anatta. Atta means self. It means I and my. It means uh, ego. And anatta means not self. Not I. Not ego. No I. And we we in the spiritual practices, as people do report. I will say, well, I've never had such an experience of no self, no I. I, I don't know what's you know, really meant by that. I can't relate any of my experiences in which I could say, well, there was no I, no self, no, no me, no my taking place. And others can clearly and distinctly uh, recall uh, such situations, either in the near or in the distant past in relationship to the experience of of that, first we need to uh, observe and notice attentively the normal conditions of consciousness, the, the normal viewpoint, which we as people on the earth come to agree about. A normal mind, everyday conventional viewpoint, does say, I am sitting here, you are sitting uh, there and through that mutual acknowledgement and understanding of oneself in relationship to other selves, we have our existence we have a sense and know and some knowledge of who we are in relationship oneself appearing in contact with another self and all of that or selves and all of that is the world of self then this characteristic mention or feature in the teachings speaks to us of no self, of not self. And at the immediate level upon hearing that, it seems, well, it doesn't seem rational, it doesn't seem logical, it doesn't fit in with with my uh, everyday normal mind. But the the experience of not self or um, no self can be known and can be experienced in many different ways and thus at times we may not be aware clearly of what we mean by that. As an example, uh, I'll take uh, two or three examples. In relationship to any particular object of meditation, during the days we've explored the breathing meditation the body awareness meditation, the the states of mind meditation, and quite naturally and frequently enough, the thought and the, the deeply rooted idea of I arises in connection with that. I am breathing in and out. I am putting my attention through the body. I am experiencing these emotions. I am observing my thoughts or whatever. All of that quite appropriate in the description that takes place, but it can be, and for some there are periods and, and moments when the eye doesn't seem to have a relevance. It doesn't seem to be really what's happening. It's as though the eye is really an appendix to the simple, but still conventional truth of what is taking place and thus there can be that simple pure undiluted in fact by the eye awareness of just breathing in and out is just going on there's a consciousness of course which apprehends it and it's just consciousness in relationship to inhaling and exhaling and it's just an event and the potency of the I which says, "Well, I am breathing in and out, and this is my breath, and this is my my body." That strength and that potency of this and the idea of substance of I begins to drop and fade away, and there's just sitting on this earth, and there's just breathing in and breathing out, which is going on, and as I said, rather pure, rather undiluted, and the I itself doesn't seem to have any significance, any relationship to that. And thus the response of it is much more in impersonal terms than personal terms. Those may be short-lived. Experiences in impersonal light matter and give great support to spiritual awarenesses because they begin effectively to question the substance of I, the no self-awareness, the no s- self-experience or the non-self-awareness uh, experience, acts as bringing a certain light to life, to existence, the immediate existence and just question, may n- one may not be realizing it consciously, but just questions the authenticity of I the substance of it, the reality of it, whether it really has a, a, an ultimately true existence. But as I say, it's not the only expression in life of, of uh, not-self or no-self. No there can be, in our experiences, in terms of I, its dropping and fading away, and in its dropping and fading away, there's the sense of just life unfolding itself there's just the process of things which is going on and one looks in quiet reflection in the immediacy of experience there and one might just see the aging process as an example, just going on moment to moment moment to moment, no eye on the earth no matter how much will effort can stop that Process which is going on. And one is quite clear about it, and the clarity of the about, about it reveals unequivocally the non-iness of the process. It just goes on as it goes on, as it goes on. And we that is awareness in this case sees that going on and we can't arrest it. We can't live in eternity. We can't have Uh, an endless continuity of existence why it's no self, it's non-self it's the process of life unfolding itself and when that's clear to us inwardly and with some depth to it we say "Ah, this is what no self experience is what non-self awareness is there and as I say it helps to sober up the truth of life the everyday conventional truth of life—it it helps to make our experience of life stand out much more clearly because we are un- beginning to understand and know what not-self or no-self is. Just as that can be applied to body in the long-term view, but also in the momentary view, view, also it applies equally to. With our thoughts and our feelings and our emotions, that the experience and the revelation of them doesn't always carry I and my with it. And thus, we can speak from direct experience and say, here is a stream of thoughts just going on. They seem to have kind of drift or life or momentum of, of their own. And there's no owner, there's no self that owns these thoughts and there is just that witnessing which sees thoughts as thoughts, as thought as a thought as a thought arising and passing in the consciousness that is just going on and it's an awareness which shows it but of course in such experiences either during or immediately afterwards the I can arise, as it easily does, and says, oh, I have had a no-I experience. (laughs) (laughs) And it can produce a kind of conflicting or paradoxical relationship to that. But it produces that, whether it's Seeing thoughts as thought, but no owner, no real thinker. Seeing, witnessing impersonally with that intimacy that's necessary of feelings and feelings and waves as waves and emotions as emotions and body life as bodily life. And in the experiences of all of that, which is just life revealing itself in that impersonal light that I referred to, When the experiences like that do register very well and very clearly for us, it's quite natural and organic that in response to that the I will arise and it will say, I had this experience. It will, the I, in connection to immediate memory or in the actual event which is taking place, the I, as the deeply rooted sense and idea that we have, does surface, it does present itself, and it does draw that conclusion. And so one says, then one can find oneself, as I mentioned, in a kind of paradoxical or difficult situation because it seems like one, <coughs> no self, life just unfolding body is body, feelings are feelings, perceptions are perceptions, thoughts are thoughts, emotions are emotions, states of mind are states of mind, they're just unfolding themselves, sometimes with I, as it were, embedded in it, sometimes not just taking place. But the dilemma can arise because, as I say, either at the time or afterwards, it seems like the experience of I in life is giving confirmation to no I. And one can find oneself, as some practitioners do, genuinely on the horns of a dilemma. Which is true? What, 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 what do I accept? What do I believe? What's my normal state of mind, so to speak, or consciousness? Do I live and abide in a view of life that it's all no-self, non-self, and that's the ultimate truth of things, and I pin a great deal of faith in that. Is my everyday experience of life very much in the conventional mode, and in, in that I keep confirming life through I, through I and my, and that's my basically the reference point for existence is what is connected to and sometimes stuck to I and my. And therefore whatever comes to I and my, I take to be the reality, to be the truth, to be the way things are. So in our awareness and in the the seeing that takes place, As I said, the duality of life can have genuine and invaluable experiences of no-self, non-self, either on a specific perception, an unexpected experience, a developed experience, or a general process of life, all and many other ways can keep revealing no-self, no-I, just events, just process and yet still the revelation of I and my arising and there we are, our life is going by day in, day day out, I and my rising, and no I and my showing itself or whatever and we say, is that it? is that the, the truth of life? is that the kind of final reality of our existence, a kind of movement back and forwards between experiences of no I, no me, no my, no self or whatever and then back to I, me, my and self and sometimes with a vengeance. So that movement, that fluctuation between the two seems to express our inner life and its unfoldment and its Revelation. All of that, it would be unwise, I would say, and uh, unskillful to, in fact, highlight no self into something transpersonal. The Buddha has never done it, the teachings needn't do it either, in terms we suddenly start saying, well if I'm really going to live with the truth then I would need, as it were, to abide much more frequently in the no-I experience and because that's the real truth, because the I is a total lie, it's a total deception, it's a total fiction and therefore totally untrue. But human experience has never supported that. Neither has uh, teachings of awakening and certainly not the Buddha who, like other human beings, use with regularity the language of I in his teachings and fairly uh, clear and uh, self, self-evident. So if, in our experience of life, we begin to elevate one no-I experience n- spontaneously in meditation when out in the nature, when all the roles have dropped away, in a sudden perception that can take place, in the very descriptions that we speak about life just going on. It's all no-I language that's being used and you and I use it regularly. The poets have used it frequently. It's a common appreciation and realisation. And then the I arises and it appears and shows itself. The significant... Factor is not so much the presentation of I or its non presentation in the ways that I've been speaking about. With the I is there suffering. With the I is there suffering. The I itself, in a way, is not I. In a way, it's not I. It's another manifestation of life another presentation that comes but in a way that there's been a dwelling on the character of I, I I in a way it's not I so this very I itself is an I which is shared with all humanity that sense of I that I have when I sit here, that feeling of I, that quality, that notion, that deeply rooted idea or perception that I have is the same I have everywhere feeling of I, the notion of I, the experience of I, the quality of I, the language of I, the concept of I, is something which is pervasive. In a way, it is not I as much as the experiences of not I. Occasionally, sometimes, with some insight, some realisation, some penetration into, into these things, there's a kind of evenness of awareness An evenness of seeing, which stops this distinguishing between I, I, I and my, I and my, and not I, not my. They're kind of much of the sameness. What makes the difference, as I pointed out a few moments ago, is with the I and my, is there suffering in it? Is it locked Bound up with suffering. When it is bound up with suffering, our distinction as a a supposedly separate self is the most strongest. When we're free from that I and there's spaciousness, there's an expansiveness, there's warmth or love or contentment or equanimity or stability or or calmness or whatever, and there's not a grasping upon that, there's a sense of interconnectedness which comes easily and uh, naturally for us. But in when I am suffering, it brings and is the one factor which brings an extraordinary degree of substantiality and reification and uh, hardness and um, motion and um, fixation to I. Suffering does that more than anything else for the I. So as we explore that and bring our awareness to, to all of that and look into the nature of suffering, of dukkha, of unsatisfactoriness, it naturally makes less of I. Because the I can't get separate from that suffering, and our capacity, inwardly, outwardly, together uh, with it, with ourselves, then begins to help us change the conventions of perception, change the social norms and viewpoints that we have, and in and in fact, begin to make a shift of consciousness. And there is a shift of consciousness which the teachings express again and again, is a shift which is a final shift. A shift which is for once and for all. That there is an end to the spiritual path, an end to spiritual practice, and therefore that shift is a shift which brings everything to completion. And the issues of I and no I have resolved themselves. People in spiritual practice in this duality of moving backwards and forwards and all the exploration that it takes and looking at what is I, what is not I or whatever also can get confused understandably so by that language which I think is not helpful and not useful Um, the language of um, the higher self and the lower self the language of Um, the self with a capital T and a capital uh, S, Uh, the language of a transcendental self or a pure soul or whatever. Though that language can be used, but needs to be used with extraordinary caution because of the confusion that can arise, perhaps, and certainly the Buddha himself and in in the, the healthiest aspects of the tradition have never and would never in this tradition elevate self into some ultimate category because how easily in in these fields the the ego can confuse itself for all sorts of unsatisfactory motives and latch on to I am the supreme self and the conceit, the arrogance The the power tripping, the ego that can go on when one is fastening or grasping onto Mm -hmm. the self with a capital T and a capital S. So if we can, in our awareness of experiences of I and no I of self and not self, keep it as much as possible into the relative fields of experience both of which we know, both of which we know, both of which I say we comment on in various ways, without elevating no self to an ultimate category, which Buddhists have done from time to time, or the elevation of the self into an ultimate category, which also has taken place, Hindu tradition, most noticeable for it. If you say, okay, there's this movement, self and no self, as it were, going on side by side or simultaneously, where is the consummation? Where is the end of all this exploration, all this endeavour, all of this inquiry? What's going to bring it to a a final, once and for all completion in which there's no self-deception left of falling back into the dualisms, the backwards and forwards between self and no self, between me and this, that and the other. What is that shift which is spoken of with such assurance through the sages for generations, which as I say has a finality to it and the experience of life confirms the finality there. For some, a number of you in this hall have had. Tremendous exposure to spiritual teachings and practices here and elsewhere, in fact, uh, world, worldwide. And it's, it can be, and it's understandable, rather easy to be um, almost constantly and consistently working on the relative. Working on the relative is to work on the state of mind. To work on the relative is to work on the i and the not i. Work on the relative is to work on the relationship to bodily uh, experiences and all those processes which I referred to uh, earlier on. And it might need and it can be as scary and uh, and generate some doubt and uh, difficulty necessary to really lose interest. And I mean lose interest in working so much, so long and so hard on states of mind and states of body that somewhere in all of that working upon all of that one has to say to oneself enough is enough is enough is enough whatever the forms and strategies which one has employed for that working on mind remember including emotions and every form of inner human experience and to be able to say to oneself and no easy undertaking for a thoughtful and caring human being is enough. And of course that can generate some restlessness. But what if I if if I stop all, all, all doing that, if I stop that, then what? But perhaps the attention needs to make a shift from the known and the familiar, which is heart, mind, and body, to that which is unknown which is not of any of of that. And it's as though we need for for that a different type, Buddha has referred to this, I may add, a different type of concentration. And it's a concentration of that which is not mind and body. And the language for that, if one likes and uses language, needs to be a language which is responsible when it has a feeling response to, and is in fact ultimate in its feature. For those who have the language for that, that language may be truth. That language may be ultimate Dharma. That language may be liberation. That language may be enlightenment. That language may be God. That language may be realisation. That language may be emptiness, which makes everything possible, whatever. So that one is actively forgetting, purposefully and quite deliberately, the, the incidental and irrelevant events that go on in the name of heart, mind and body. And puts the concentration, so to speak, elsewhere, quite off that, and quite onto that which is ultimate. For some people, that shift of concentration, of attention, from relative matters, heart, mind, body, being in the world is the relative matters, to the focus and concentration and attention, to that which is ultimate, which is the fulfillment and the shift which is the one that matters, for some, people feel, understandably and appropriately, for some, no wish to bring a language to it, no wish to use a word, Teachings. Buddha himself has been extremely and unusually cautious about using a word. Sometimes he'll say nirvana, sometimes he'll say liberation, sometimes he'll say the truth which never changes, sometimes he'll say enlightenment. Never fixing a particular word and keeping and identifying with it strictly again and again. Using language, I think, remarkably skillfully, so that we don't get a fixation about some word what is that to concentrate on which is not a heart mind body and things that are going on around us and it requires a special kind of sense so one if one takes as an example freedom true freedom that the the and the understanding and the realization of freedom, which is nirvana, which is the truth, which is liberation, which is enlightenment, which is God, that that what is that, what is that freedom? What is this freedom? What is this liberation? What is this enlightenment? And, and the events of mind and body, as I say, are quite marginalized, quite peripheral. Because one is exploring and finding out what it is to realize the ultimate truth. And not to be shy nor afraid of actually bringing that final and fulfilling element of the spiritual quest to a completion. And therefore I say it's a certain kind of concentration, a certain kind of interest and and focus. Why? Because we're willing to go from the known, which is oneself in the world, to that which is unknown. But that which is unknown in its shift transforms everything about the way that one sees life. Everything, once and for all. And it's genuinely and authentically liberating. But we may have to forget our self and our no self. You may have to just put it aside. That those discoveries which can take place, which are um, immediacy for us, can of course, of course they can, happen quite spontaneously. Not through any concentration, not through any special attention to wards, not through a losing of interest in that duality of life of am I or am I not, what shall I do or shan't do, and all those dualities, the pleasant and the unpleasant. That we were hearing about in the inquiry this afternoon, that it, the realizations, of course, can occur, which are liberating and have a st- steadiness to them. Therefore, in that steadiness, it's the one valid means, the one instrument that a human being has to know if they've realized something. If they've realized something, it's real. If it's real, it stays steady. If it stays steady, it's not going to be lost by the events of the world. And if one hasn't had realisation, but has had invaluable and important experiences in the spiritual uh, life, which come and go, it's not a realisation. Realisation makes real, makes steady, makes, makes present. Not affected by the dance that goes on around us. And sometimes we do get confused between what we've realized and what we've experienced. Here we're interested in experiencing and staying steady with the truth of things. The truth of things has got nothing to do with impermanence, nothing to do with unsatisfactoriness, and nothing to do with no self. That's just the conventional way that you and I apprehend existence. And function in it. But what is the truth of things? Which is staying steady. Not subject to coming and going. Not subject to unsatisfactoriness. And not subject to the presence and absence of self. What is the truth? As I say, that can be apprehended, realized. Through spontaneity. And... For some, that spontaneity comes in various ways and also can be realised through the processes of which we engage in the spiritual life, in the commitment to spiritual practice, that that the the urgency and the love of the quest for what what, what is the truth. Not something to cling to, to make an ideology of and completely misunderstand the truth of things. What is the truth of things? And that contemplative indwelling is something which I would say often gets forgotten and neglected what is liberation here and now what is that which stays steady in spite of the movement of birth and death and if we can uh, allow ourselves to to dwell and contemplate and reflect and abide with these things perhaps that will be a contribution to that realisation. Otherwise we get caught on that common horns of a dilemma which I hear frequently on, in and out of retreats where almost sometimes, and, and I uh, also, as others will refer to it, will speak in ways of just being. Nothing to do, nothing to gain nothing to benefit from, nothing to pursue, nothing to run after, just being. And is important and invaluable aspect of spiritual teachings. And one will also hear from voices like mine and uh, uh, others, just being, that isn't enough. Just having a depth of calmness and stability and just being present and being with life in a personal or impersonal way, that isn't enough. And that does generate the sense of course of something more and so one can go back well if if there's just being then then perhaps it can come spontaneously and that approach is valid and useful and and significant and if there's just being then perhaps I need to do something more to accelerate, to bring something about that, that shift which has its own finality to it and there are experiences and movements that we can go back and forwards between there. But more important, the, the question of being and the question of, of doing is what is the truth of things? What is this liberation which is spoken about and has been and will be spoken about from one generation to the next? What is this free, fr- freedom there? And as I said, one of the features of that realisation is, in terms of, of uh, heart, mind and body, it takes so much, and in some cases, all of the suffering that's tied up with the inner life. It takes it out. Because the inner life is freed up from it. And all these things is what we speak about when we speak of finding God, living with God, being with God, knowing God, dwelling with God, if that language is comfortable for us. And it's nothing theoretical or abstract or distant or or what, whatever. person knows what that means. And for someone who says the word God, G-O-D, I can't relate to it, means nothing to me. Fine, fine, one doesn't, ever have to introduce the word uh, God and as I said before another word what liberation is, what freedom is and for some not, not that word also all can fade away from consciousness so let's be let's clear As we humanly can with our relative experiences of life, which I've been referring to, their place in life, their usefulness in life, or whatever, and that which is truly, truly. And then we pay the greatest respect to life, to the truth of things, to the nature of of things, and to what it is to be. May all beings live with awareness and insight. May all beings see deeply into the nature of things. May all beings taste daily liberation.